Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. It's time, Craig, for another request this week. This request comes from loyal listener Adam, who several times over, perhaps three times in fact, has requested The Exorcist Part 3. So, Adam, this goes out to you. Uh, I think we've done The Exorcist 2 before on this show. Yep. We've been shying away from The Exorcist, like we shy away from all of these uh, super classic films. Well, not all of them, but many of them. Right. But uh, The Exorcist 3, I remember from, I think I watched it in high school. came out in 1990. I remember getting together with friends. We would often rent movies and watch them at night uh, over at somebody's house on a Friday night or Saturday night, and I'm pretty sure we popped in The Exorcist Part 3. The the extent of my recollections of this film was one scene in particular being one of the scariest jump scares I've ever seen, to this date even, and maybe a lot of people would would say that. And then I do remember falling asleep. (laughs) (laughs) I remember dozing in and out of the movie and um, not having very strong feelings about it except i think i just remembered as being pretty scary and now that i think about it probably was all based on that jump scare um i was really excited to come back and revisit it because i forgot pretty much everything except for that scene how about you craig what's your history with this one i know that i had seen it probably like you i probably saw it when i was in high school or early in college i don't know i didn't remember much about it but you know, I do recall reading um, a lot of flattering things about it. I mean, it was much better received than The Exorcist 2, which, in fairness, is not very good. I mean, no. I don't hate it. It's weird. I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't hate it. I, you know, I liked that uh, this, they continued the story of Reagan. I was interested in that story. But it was lacking in a lot of ways. The writer and director of the source novel also wrote the source novel for this movie and directed this movie, did not like uh, The Exorcist 2 at all and, and wanted to distance himself and distance this movie from that. And so it actually was conceived as a film. Uh, William Peter Blatty the writer, wanted to make a sequel to the original film, um, and he approached, I don't know, a studio, some studios. William Friedkin, the director of the original? No, no, this, the, the, the writer of this movie, I think. I mean, William Peter Blatty approached William Friedkin. Oh, okay, uh, with, gotcha. Yeah, for the sequel, yeah. Yeah. Who wasn't interested, <laughs> apparently. Right. Well, at least not in this story. And so William Peter Blatty went ahead and, and wrote it as a novel and titled it Legion. Uh, and it is a sequel. It features several characters from the original. It it, it does not follow uh, Reagan's story. The film ignores the sequel, The Exorcist 2, but doesn't directly contradict it either but anyway the point is he wrote the novel and then after he had written the novel then there started to be some in in, in the meantime the exorcist 2 came out uh blatty hated it but eventually he was given the option to make this movie he wanted to simply title it legion as he had titled his novel but the studio that uh 
picked it up, was hesitant about that. They wanted the name recognition of The Exorcist, and so Blatty uh, said, well, let's call it The Exorcist 1990 um, instead of The Exorcist 3. <laughs> the studio initially said, okay, and they shot it under that title, but eventually they just went with uh, The Exorcist 3 anyway. Watching this movie again, I found that I really didn't remember much of it, and I imagine that part of the reason that I didn't remember much of it is that this movie... <sighs> hmm. I may be giving it a little bit too much credit here, but it's kind of heady. Yeah. It's it's very different than the first movie. And what we're watching, what we watched, is the theatrical cut. And there was a lot of studio involvement in the theatrical cut. The original cut was much more closely adapted from the novel and that was the deal that Blatty made with the studio he said I want to make it the way I want to make it and the studio said that's fine you can make it your way but we're going to give it one preview and if the preview doesn't go well then we're going to do reshoots and Blatty said okay that's fine and and so that's what they did he filmed it the way that he wanted to they did a preview uh Blatty in interviews seems to kind of suggest that the preview was kind of a hit job. Like, <laughs> they intentionally <laughs> brought in an audience that they knew wouldn't respond well. And they didn't. And so he had to do reshoots. And they reshot it extensively. The original footage was thought to be lost forever. Uh, and it wasn't until 2016, 2017, right before Blatty passed away, um, that they found the original footage and they recut it with varying video quality because the footage that they found was VHS, I think. Um, and it wasn't super great quality. They, they put a disclaimer up before it, but Blatty's directorial cut did come out before he passed away in, in 2017, I think. And I don't think I've ever seen that. And I didn't even realize all of that behind the scenes drama until I was watching this. And there were parts of it that were just a couple of parts in particular that were so oddly cut. I'm like, what yeah. is happening? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you could say like, that. There was one part. There was one part in particular that uh, I thought that my internet had messed up and like jumped forward or something. It cut to what was clearly the end of a scene and. I rewound it to make sure that I hadn't missed something, and I hadn't. And it just turned out that it was because they were cutting around footage. Um, and so when I realized that there were these two different versions, of course, you and I are on opposite sides of the world. So I'm watching it, you know, the day before we're going to be doing it, but that's the middle of the night for you. And so I texted you really quick. I'm like, dude, there are two versions, and apparently they're, like, vastly different. So <laughs> are we watching the same one? Do, do we watch different ones and talk about the differences? And when I had finished watching this cut, which is what we ended up going with, I texted you and I said, you know what, I think they're so different, I think it would be confusing if we watched the different versions. So we both watched the theatrical cut, and I have to say, based on the descriptions of the director's cut and based on my viewing of this one 
I can't say objectively because I don't think I've seen the director's cut, but I think we made the right choice. Yeah, it seems like it. Well, that seems to be the consensus online. Most of what I've read at, at best says there's not actually that much difference that's so significant that really alters too much, except for the ending. Well, like the last third of the movie and a major recast, they inserted a whole new character, which it feels... Feels like it. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he, he feels spliced in. It's it's bizarre. But another significant change, this centers around a detective or a cop, whatever he is, named Kinderman, who did appear in the original novel and in the original film. He's recast here because the original actor had passed away. Um, and he's played by George C. Scott uh, in this movie, who is a renowned actor. I have to say, I always find him to be over the top. <laughs> yeah. He's so over the top in this movie, and especially in the beginning, it was almost to be distracting, right? He's just this sort of like uh, disgruntled, sort of seen it all, angry and also upset kind of cop who's always got this witty and snide comments to make and, and you know, never cracks a smile. My wife's mother is visiting, Father. And Tuesday night she's cooking as a carp. It's a tasty fish. I, I have nothing against it. But because it's supposedly filled with impurities, she buys it live. And for three days it's been swimming up and down in my bathtub. Up and down. And I hate it. I can't stand the sight of it moving its gills. Now you're standing very close to me, Father. Have you noticed? Yes. I haven't had a bath for three days. I can't go home until the carp is asleep. <laughs> because if I see it swimming, I'll kill it. <laughs> well, not only that, but he goes from zero to sixty in like yeah, a spl- like like he just flips out. It's <laughs> true. Somebody says the wrong word and suddenly he's screaming and holding his head. Right? It's, like, what? <laughs> it's distracting, actually. I, I, it I, is distracting, but I mean, to his credit, I mean, this is a he's a reputable actor. He's done a lot of you know big things and and gotten a lot of acclaim. So. Whatever, we'll excuse that. The other thing is, though, he is investigating these murders that appear to follow the patterns of this serial killer who was supposedly killed years before, but now all of a sudden these murders have come up and they have the same M.O. as the serial killer, the Gemini killer. And eventually he stumbles upon this patient in a mental ward of a hospital, the disturbed ward of a hospital, who claims to be the Gemini killer. And that character is played by, oh, help me out here, I can't think of... Brad Dorf. Brad Dorf. Brad Dorf, who is probably most famous at this point for voicing Chucky, yeah. and I love the Chucky movies, and I love Brad Dorf in those movies, but this movie reminded me that Brad Dorf is an exceptional actor. Yes. Like, like he is amazing. He's amazing in this movie. It's it's, it's incredible. so good. And, you know, you don't think, when you think of the Chucky movies, you don't think of them for their outstanding 
acting acting performances. <laughs> but you know, they're fun, whatever. But you know, I was reminded that my first exposure to Brad Dourif was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He played Billy Bibbit, and oh, he yeah. was um, he was amazing and devastating in that movie too. And his talent is just on full display here. And in the original shoot. He played this character throughout. You know, it, it was just him. When they did the reshoots, the studio wanted somebody from the original, an original cast member. So, um, they got the other guy that you said. What was his name? Jason John. Miller. Jason, Jason Miller. Miller, who played Father Karras, the exorcist, in the, in the first Exorcist, and they share the role, which sounds really strange, but actually, I think it works really, really well. It does. And and supposedly, they were going to have um, Miller play the role. Initially, they said he was unavailable. Later in an interview, Brad Dorff said that the truth of the matter was that he was an alcoholic, and because of his alcoholism, he couldn't memorize some of the lengthy monologues that um, the Gemini killer slash Karis has to deliver. So when they did the reshoots, they brought in Miller and he filmed some of the scenes with shorter dialogue and it, it just bounces back and forth between the two of them. And that sounds so odd, mm -hmm. but it, it worked for me. It, yeah. it really, it really did. It did, although it did raise some questions. I'm still not exactly sure how to parse all that out as to what was sort of reality and what was not. Because there's another scene that was inserted after the director's cut that I thought casts a little bit of that a doubt on what's going on there. I don't know. I guess we can talk about it, right? As we get as we get through there, it's it's a weird movie, and like you said yourself, it's especially just bizarrely cut. I think I was reading on, on something online or some quip about it that mentioned that William Peter Blatty is a little reminiscent of David Lynch in this movie. And I kind of have to agree because things get a yeah. little esoteric and strange and these random cuts to things that don't seem to match or these thematic elements like there's a red rose that kind of pops mm -hmm. in and out that you, you, know, you know must be significant, but there's not really a lot it's never settled for you, <laughs> you know, right. a lot of these little things. It's interesting. I think William Friedkin in the original didn't do much of that. He inserted some sort of subliminal shots like, you know, couple frame flashes of demons and things and, and stuff yeah. in there. Mm -hmm. So this movie, I actually felt like this movie was much closer in tone, to be honest, to the sequel, <laughs> to The Exorcist 2, than it was to the first one. And the first reason I say that is that it's not a very... It doesn't appear to be a very straightforward plot. The very first Exorcist has a very straightforward, pretty linear plot with a sort of a subplot involving the Father Karras character, but it's more of a thematic plot than anything else, just his brooding and what, you know, kind of what's going on inside of him. Right. The second movie, it goes in bizarre territory, right? It, it, it's it's yeah. like about... Psychic and, stuff. Psychic stuff, and then we kind of go to Africa, and like people are like flying through the air, oh, yeah. dream sequences, and then they kind of pop out of dream sequences, and suddenly they're in reality again but you're not even sure like if what you just saw was real it, it's it's bizarre and it also gets comical and also it's just not very scary uh, there's not a lot of horror 
happening in The Exorcist Part 2. And as I recall, there's not even an exorcism happening in The Exorcist Part 2. Yeah. And that was part of the issue when with the first cut of this movie, which was based on his novel Legion. And William Peter Blatty was very insistent that, you know, he didn't really want this to be a horror movie. Right. He wanted it to be based on the novel, which... As the movie plays out, in general, it's kind of like a police procedural, yeah, in a way, with with some supernatural elements to it, but nothing overtly horror. And the bits that were added to it, one of the main things was an actual exorcism at the end, because apparently um, the secretary of one of the producers or somebody involved in the movie was like, look, you're, you're calling it The Exorcist 3 and there's no exorcism in there. And so they made him go back and alter the ending of the film to add that extra character. Uh, you know, it's, it's basically another priest that's just very loosely and quickly referenced earlier in the film. We see a couple shots of him looking pensive and disturbed. Right. And then you never see him again until the very end when he's kind of mysteriously and unexplainably shows up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, it's weird. To, uh-huh. to perform an exorcism. And then the exorcism, it's just so different in tone from the rest of the movie. It's this special effects extravaganza uh it's almost like something out of nightmare on elm street you know and it's uh, crazy and it it, it apparently costs like four million dollars alone yes i know and (laughs) it's insane and and blatty's you know said look he's like i kind of went in there thinking all right i'm gonna put lipstick on this pig you know if they want me to do this extra bit i'm gonna make it look awesome and it's okay i mean it's it's perfectly fine. It's an awesome kind of scene in another movie. <laughs> but in this movie, it just kind of comes out of left field. Although, to be fair, you're assaulted with a lot of out-of-left-field things in this movie anyway. Anyway, the, Just the tone of this is different. This movie, it's a freaking fever dream. Like, yeah. <laughs> there were parts of it when I was like, did I accidentally take some acid before I watched this? Like... <laughs> It's so weird. There are some scenes that are so bizarre. There's one scene in particular in which Kinderman, George C. Scott, I guess it's a dream? Yeah. But he, like, ends up in, like, what looks like maybe a cathedral, but it's set up like as like a triage ward and like there's all these angels like in full angel get up with the huge wings and stuff like ministering to people but then like there's little people there and fabio is there fabio you know it's so weird what is happening there are so many (laughs) distracting cameos in this film like there are cameos in this movie that are just like a two-second shot of a guy and you're just like holy shit that was larry king like yeah. sitting at a table like, ordering why? something. Like and it, again, the same thing in that Fab it's like Fabio, what is he doing? <laughs> and it's just a shot of him like sitting there looking pretty, like Fabio, like <laughs> like he's posing for a cover of one of his romance novels or something. It, it's <laughs> it's like what what? Fabio? What's it's happening? So like did he, it's so bizarre. Was the director a fan? Did he call in a favor? Like how did he get like a split second shot of this movie? <laughs> with barely a mention but it happens and that just adds to the surreal distracting quality apparently samuel jackson is in that too although i didn't catch i know i didn't see him yeah no but there's there's also another thing i have to admit that it pulled me out a little bit though it shouldn't have but 
so many of the minor, minor characters in this movie are incredibly recognizable B-list actors. Like, mm. it, it seems like almost everybody you're introduced to, you're like, oh, that guy. Oh, her. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like, you don't know their name, but you know you've seen them before. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, it was, it's weird. It's it's a weird movie. And honestly, about halfway through was when I texted you the first time, and I'm like, dude, it doesn't even make any sense. And then, by the time I got to the end... I ended up liking it. And, and that, that, the, that closing scene, the big exorcism at the end, it, it felt kind of in keeping with, um, the first movie in so much as at this point, Father Car- the, the man, Miller, who played Father Karras in the original, has, has taken <laughs> the role. Um, and they have him in makeup and the atmosphere is all very similar to what it looked like in the first movie. Like his possessed persona is very reminiscent of what people looked like who were possessed, especially at the end of the first movie. And, you know, atmospherically it's very cold and so there's lots of fog and you can see their breath and the lighting is like you know in shades of blue and stuff um so i felt like it did tie well to the first movie but you're right throughout it is just be in terms of being so odd it is kind of more like the second movie i i really hadn't thought about that i mean let's be honest too The first movie gets a lot of credit for being really scary, and it's iconic, and it's got this cool theme, but it's extremely exploitative. I mean, there are parts that don't withstand scrutiny. It's absurd uh, at a moment, you know, where Reagan's head completely spins entirely around, right? Yeah. That's just total horror movie. The ending, you know, is is just kind of another special effects extravaganza, floating and, you know, possession and the demon kind of shows up and there's a face splashing up there. We revere this movie as being spooky, but you kind of forget that it, it has its moments, too, where it's a little hokey and crazy. And especially if you see, like, the director's cut, where apparently, like... There's like she's spider walking down the stairs and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, you know, in that way, like the whole franchise, if you will, it doesn't pretend to be this sort of deep psychological drama. It just has enough of that that somehow it just feels a little more respectable than <laughs> most a lot of the other horror movies we watch. You know, I don't know what to, what I'm trying to say here, but uh, I guess it just what I'm trying to say is it just got elements of all of it in it. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what you're trying to say either, because I will not <laughs> I, I will not speak ill of that movie. I, you know, if people ask me, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? I'll throw that one out. Oh, there it's scary. Because I do I do find that movie to be very scary. You know, and again, <laughs> we've intentionally not talked about it. There's so much to talk about. I mean, the, you know, uh Linda Blair and the woman who's very famous but I can't think of her name who played her mother were both severely injured because of the director's careless treatment of them and you know there a bunch of people died like the movie is supposed to be cursed or whatever if if you haven't if you're interested in that movie and you haven't looked into it read up on it because there's a lot of really fascinating things going on there and uh, they they did an episode there on shutter there's a series called 
I think it's called Cursed Films or something like that. Um, and they did, I think the very first episode was on The Exorcist. And, and there's a lot of really fascinating stuff that's going on there. This, you know, aside, aside from all the studio intervention and all that kind of stuff, you know, not a whole lot of fascinating behind the scenes stuff. It's, it's really more just about how it came together. Um, yeah. That's so interesting. I, I mean, the story is hard to follow for a while. Oh my gosh. I think maybe why you and I also ended up like appreciating it a little bit more by the time it was done is simply because at some point in the movie, there's just a long monologue that explains it. <laughs> and I mean, I, I might knock the film for that, but by God, by that time, I just wanted to, to get a sense on what was happening. And it's, you know, Brad Dorif or in the Gemini Killer character who eventually just spits out in this long monologue exactly what's going on. And by then you're like, okay, all this now that I've been seeing sort of makes sense. There's no way I think you would have without that. So there's a real, like, there's just a sense, I feel like the movie just builds this sense of, I don't want to say wonder, just confusion. And it's just interesting enough to kind of keep you going along in that confusion, shoot all this random stuff at you, these random images, all these things are happening, and you're just looking, you're trying to piece the mystery together, you're trying to puzzle it out, but it feels like the movie's actually trying to confuse you more. And then there's that moment, you know, I think three quarters of the way through, where he just basically explains. And what it is, is apparently the Gemini killer was executed, I think, I think, if I'm getting this right. yeah. Electric chair, yeah. 15 years ago, at the same time that, you know, this exorcism with Reagan happened. And so, as Father Karras fell down the stairs and died, the devils, <laughs> like... Right. Legion. <laughs> yeah. Reward or revenge or whatever for this exorcism happening and going away, he decides to stick the Gemini killer's spirit or essence as a demon now, whatever, into Father Karras. Although, Father Karras is body now is just jelly he's brain dead and everything so it takes the next 15 years for this spirit to regenerate enough of his body that he can actually come to life and move about in the world because as he explains like spirits need a human host right in order to walk around through the movie so he literally Father Karras's body, I mean, we don't see this, we just hear about it, was re-resurrected and ended up in a psych ward. Right. Now, here's where it's weird, right? Okay, he says that, you know, we need this human thing. So he spends all this time regenerating, regenerating, ends up in a psych ward. I'm not sure we know exactly how he ends up there. I think it might have been explained. Mm. In any case, he says he's also a traveler. So now that I guess he's in a completely regenerated body, he's able to hop hop around yeah you know which kind of doesn't make sense anymore right but anyway he's able to hop around and he hops around to the older and more elderly people in the nearby psych ward so that these elderly people can go out and commit these crimes right that's that and it's pretty silly (laughs) yeah it's pretty silly that's why i say it's kind of a lot like the exorcist too almost as silly as the Exorcist Two was, yeah, I mean, it's it's just a, a matter of willing suspension of disbelief. Like it, it is silly, and because all these murders are happening, and there are several brutal murders, a young boy, and and just like in the original movie, you know, it's not just murders, but 
it's always in some way made to be profane. Um, this, this young boy that, that Kinderman actually knows because he's part of a, like the police squad boys club or something. He's murdered in the beginning and his eyes are gouged out and he's decapitated and his head is replaced with the broken off statue head of Jesus, <laughs> but it's painted up like a minstrel show and he's crucified on oars. Like, so, you know, not only is it just brutal murder, but it's also clearly intentionally like an affront to god or whatever mm-hmm. and then i don't know a, a priest uh is killed um while he's doing confession i, I liked that scene it's so bizarre i didn't know because this is before what you just explained was explained this priest is doing confession and it's this little old lady's voice and then she starts saying these horrible murderous things that she's done and then her voice changes into this demonic voice and then the first was that waitress uh, near candlestick park i cut her throat and watched her bleed she bled a great deal it's a problem that i'm working on father all this bleeding She kills him. Well, apparently, as you just explained, that makes sense because he's using these convalescents as conduits. Like he's he's inhabiting their bodies or whatever. Well, what I want to know is how are they getting out of the hospital? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I know they're not like they're not in the maximum security ward, but they're sure are able to just like leave, you know, unnoticed and then sneak back in somehow. It's just the magic of Satan, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) When I was watching that scene with the confessional, I couldn't stop thinking about Hello, Mary Lou prom night, too, (laughs) 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 which must have come out around the same time and also had an entertaining uh, confessional scene. Then um, Kinderman is uh, friends with this other priest named Father Dyer, and Father Dyer is just kind of this affable guy. Um, I I think another reason that the movie is a little bit confusing for me, and I would assume for some other audience people, is that it is following the story of people who were involved in the first movie and the first scenario, but they were minor characters yeah. that, like, I don't remember. And they're played by completely played different Played by people. different actors. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's like, oh, you know these people. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't remember how they were connected. Um, apparently, Kinderman was, like, best friends with Father Karras, who was the, the, the main, or the younger, I guess, exorcist, the one who ends up taking on the demon, taking, he invites the demon to come out of Reagan and into himself, and when the demon does that, then he throws himself down those infamous stairs, that mm-hmm. staircase in Georgetown, which we see a couple of times, which my mom loves reminding me that she's 
visited. (laughs) (laughs) Just anytime the exorcist comes up, which is more than you would think. Oh, in your family? I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I've been there. I've seen those stairs. Yes, mom. I know. It's it's one of the few contributions, I think, to the horror movie discussion at the Craig's dinner table. You know, the Higgins dinner table that she could make. Well, and my mom can't remember any movie she's ever seen (laughs) like i like we'll be talking about a movie and my mom will be like i haven't seen it and my sister will be like yes mom you have you watched it with us no no (laughs) i didn't i haven't seen it But so so and and so the whole movie. I mean, there's it's long. It's it's almost two hours. It's an hour fifty, um, and it's long, and it's a lot. You know, like you said, it's much of a crime procedural. Basically, a lot of investigating, talking to different people, talking to the people at the hospital. I mean, the fact that he just stumbles upon this Gemini killer in the hospital is yeah, kind of silly and stupid too. But then there's also always stuff. And I don't remember this at all, and I was watching this with earbuds in, so I Mm. wonder how much I would have noticed had I not had the sound directly in my ears. But throughout the whole movie, there's tons of just, like, demon breathing and demon roaring and demon chanting that's just happening all around people, and, like, they act like they don't notice. (laughs) 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 It's... It's. I watched it on a big screen, and I still noticed some of that. So I think it was, you know, pretty heavy-handed in there. But, but like you said, like, uh, still in the background. I think the movie, if I was to... There was a point, uh, there's kind of a chase scene toward the end where, like, he rushes home because it's clear that, like, his family's in danger. And there's this kind of constant, almost tribal drum beating going on in the background. And I, it occurred to me, like... Yeah, there's been a lot of this, like, droning, even just these... Just in the background that the whole movie, maybe subliminally at moments, casts a bit of a spell on you, you know? And that it adds a little bit of an extra tension to scenes that are all ultimately don't pay off or don't really go anywhere or are just confusing. They're all tied together, you know, by the sense that everything seems just a little off and ethereal. I don't know if it works 100%, but I think I can clearly see that, you know, as far as from a sound design perspective, I feel like William Peter Blatty and his crew were kind of going for this. It sounded cool. It was just kind of odd that, like, it was just happening, but just for us? Like, yeah. like well, the people involved weren't like I, I. I kept thinking, how are they not hearing this? Or it's like, like because it's so loud in my ears. <laughs> how are they not noticing? I feel like it was meant to be just things like impressions coming and going, maybe maybe coming in and out of the characters' thoughts or or something like that that maybe aren't actually happening in real life. Although there's one moment, there's one moment where he uh, is talking with um, another priest. Oh, God. What was his name? Con- Canavan or something? I don't know. Father yeah, Canavan? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, he's um he's talking with him, and Father Canavan just seems like a bit, like, kind of aloof to everything, just maybe just a little bit drunk and weary and tired. <laughs> yeah. And he has this meeting with him in the office, and then the clock stops, and they look over, and Father Canavan almost couldn't care less. <laughs> right. Whereas he's just somewhat bemused by it. <laughs> and then, like... 
the door kind of creaks open and things start the flashing. The lights flash. And they're right. hearing sounds and he gets up and Father Kahneman just is just sitting at his desk like whatever. And I'm going, what what's going are they they're not reacting like people should react in this sort of circumstance. Yeah. And so it made me wonder it made me wonder if Kender like if it was if Kenderman was the only one who was noticing. Yeah. Like not not necessarily that it was in his mind but that he was the only, like it was targeted at him, so he was the only one who was kind of experiencing it. But you're right, it is weird that the other character just sits in the background, like doesn't even say, why are you getting up and looking around? Like he just sits there, and Mm -hmm. Kinderman goes out into the hallway and looks down the hallway, and he doesn't even see it, but we see this statue that looks like it was probably originally you know of some religious figure but it looks like the joker from batman and it's holding (laughs) this giant knife and like it's just such a bizarre image yeah and nothing really comes of it it's just strange imagery yeah it comes and it goes and what was that is that a real statue is it was it an enchanted statue? Is it, is it just this weird thing in his mind? But he wasn't even there to see it. I mean, I didn't get that, right? But I feel like I feel like sometimes he's just throwing random stuff in here just to mess with our minds, just to put us on yeah. edge, you know? And it it is atmospheric. I mean, I I I do like the atmosphere that it creates. It just it's so strange. Yeah. <laughs> it's really bizarre. The the Gemini killer kills people, well, in really specific ways, which I thought was interesting. First of all, he injects them with a paralytic. How he has all of this medical knowledge, I have no idea. <laughs> or how this end manages to happen in all these circumstances. And, and how he <laughs> manages to get his hands on this powerful paralytic that he injects into people so that they are paralyzed but conscious while they are being tortured and dismembered, which is nightmarish, especially since you consider that um, the first person that we know who was killed was a 12-year-old boy. Like, mm. that's that's horrible. And, like, at one point, Brad Dourif says that, <laughs> well, he decapitates them, and then he gouges their eyes out, and then he always takes a finger, because he says he's a collector, he likes to keep some things, and he always carves the symbol of the Gemini into the other hand, the one that he didn't take the finger from. And then throughout the movie, he does various other things. There's one character, there's a nurse, which is the jump scare that you were talking about. Mm. Um, she gets killed, and, and they say that he he completely disemboweled her and then stuffed her with rosaries. Again, where do you get enough rosaries to stuff a body full of them? (laughs) But um, stuffed her full of rosaries and then sewed her back up. So his MO is very gruesome and and cruel. uh, and, And that, too, adds to the atmosphere. I appreciate that. But beyond that, all of that stuff is, you know, most of it, is stuff that we hear about yeah. off screen. We don't really see a ton of violence. You know, come to think of it, I feel like we really don't see any no, violence at all. Yeah, actually, you're right. Except for the very end, that, that sequence we were talking about that was kind of shot at yes. the end. Yeah, there's some gross... Th- it, 
And that's why it's so out of place, really. I mean, <laughs> like, that part of it, yeah. I yeah. mean, you can tell that he did what they wanted. They wanted some gore. They wanted it to be a horror movie. And like you said, Blatty, before he passed away, did interviews in which he said that he much preferred his ending and that he felt like the new ending recharacterized the whole film and and completely changed the tone but he also said it is what it is and if they were gonna do that if they were gonna make those changes i'm glad that i got to do it yeah so he wasn't like it didn't seem like he was super bitter about it it was just kind of you know that's hollywood it's gonna be done they're gonna change it at least it's in my hands and 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 i liked the end but but what's scarier to me than even these descriptions of all these horrible things that the killer has done is Brad Dorff's performance. But finally, it worked. First, a bit of the old succinylcholine to permit one to work without uh, annoying distractions. Then, a three-foot catheter threaded directly into the inferior vena cava or superior vena cava it's a matter of taste i think don't you then the tube moves through the vein under the crease of the arm into the vein that leads directly into the heart and then you just hold up the legs and you squeeze the blood manually into the tube from the arms and the legs. There's a little shaking and pounding at the end for the dregs. It isn't perfect. There's a little blood left, I'm afraid. But regardless, the overall effect is astonishing. And isn't that really what counts in the end? Yes, of course. Good showbiz, Lieutenant, the effect. And then off comes the head without spilling one single drop of blood. Now, I call that showmanship, Lieutenant. He's just phenomenal. From from an actor's perspective, his face, his voice, his uh, motivation, I mean, like, just his delivery is just phenomenal and so much of what he does are these long and when i say long probably not more than a couple of minutes but in a in a shot in a movie a couple of minutes is long and for for it just to be one person just talking and the camera on them for that long just talking um that's a long time and he is just captivating frankly i was blown away (laughs) like he was so good and he's in tears half the time and And his nose is like snot coming out of his nose (laughs) like it's just raw it's so good and and blatty does an interesting thing on occasion where he will switch to a first person pov which you don't often see in movies um, I think it's when his priest friend uh, ends up in the hospital and the killer gets to his priest friend and he first walks in. This whole sequence when he walks into the hospital is in first person. 
you just see people looking at you at the camera, and he goes in and all that. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting choice. Well, he does this again to kind of shake things up during these long monologues. So Brad Dorff isn't just, like, delivering these long, like you said, no-cut monologues towards the detective, but at some point the, the camera view will switch, and he's delivering it straight to us, straight to the camera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really captivating, and again, very talented for him to be able to do that. It's it's not hiding behind a Chucky doll, that's for sure. <laughs> right. It's amazing. Right. And then there's this doctor at the hospital, which I almost thought for a while was like freaking comic relief. Yeah, he was weird. I didn't get it. Super chain smoking. He had a nudie picture, like a oh. poster hung up in his office so in the weird. hospital. What? All kinds like, of weird stuff on his on the wall in like the hospital. Weird relics and idols and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I had no idea what was going on. I don't know there. what that was supposed to be. I don't because of all those idols and things. I thought that maybe he was in on it with the Gemini guy or the demon or. Well, he kind of was, right? Well, yes, but only because he was being coerced. Yeah. The demon or the Gemini killer, whatever you... And, and that's the other thing. Like, the Gemini killer is definitely in there. And Karis is in there, too. And when Karis kind of comes out, that's when we see the other actor, who also does a good job. And it is nice to see a familiar face from the original movie. Mm, yeah. He, he, he's not... I mean, he doesn't do a, do whole, a whole lot, lot aside from sit there and be familiar. But there's also... like Like, the demon is in there, too. And or a demon yeah. is in there too, and can also come out and and talk. It, it's weird. It's weird, but you're right. I mean, like it's kind of interesting. But then they flip. Okay, for, for real quick, I just wanted to say the actor who played the doctor. Yeah, I, I found out later is Scott Wilson who played Herschel on The Walking Dead. Oh. I- I don't watch that. So Crazy. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything to me. He doesn't look at all like him, but I just, you know, I only know Herschel with the white hair and the beard and all that stuff. So uh, it w- that was kind of interesting. No, but here's the deal. So they, they bounce between Dorif and Karis. And at first, when George C. Scott's character walks in there and sees this guy and, and is stunned by his face. Um, that's the see- scene. Yeah. No, that that's the scene that I thought that there was something wrong. Because, like he's talking to that doctor that you were talking about and he wants to see he had been drawn to that guy's to the Gemini killer's cell but we didn't really see him all we saw was somebody sitting in the dark in silhouette reciting death be not proud by John Donne which was kind of weird but then Kinderman wants to go back so it's like he says he wants to go back, but then the very next thing you see is him coming back out of that cell, freaked out. Yeah. And you don't have any idea what happened in there or why he's freaked out. Mm-hmm. I mean, he explains it later. He says, you know, that the man sitting in there is so-and-so Karis. When he then does go back in and we actually see him, it is Father Karis. Mm-hmm. But then while they're talking... In one moment, it's Father Karras, and then it cuts back to Kinderman, and then it cuts back, and then it's Brad Dorif. Yeah. But Kinderman doesn't react at all. Yeah. So I still don't really understand this. I don't know if Kinderman was always seeing Karras, and we were just seeing the Brad Dorif Gemini killer guy. I don't know. There's another scene where after they talk, pretty much every time after they talk, at the end, the Gemini killer, like, gets tired and just Im- immediately passes out. And there's one scene where it's, it's Brad Dorif 
and he starts to go to sleep and he goes to sleep and then Kinderman looks at him again and it's Karis and Kinderman goes up to him and says Damien because that's Karis's first name and Brad Dorif comes back out and just screams in his face no like it's super <laughs> scary and creepy it is but I, I still don't really get I don't understand if Kinderman was seeing him in both in carnations or if that's just us I, I don't I have no idea I think what's going on is obviously he is Damien's body because suppose because yeah. he's re- yeah he know, explains that he yeah. explains that but then he sees him as Dorf's character and then later he, there's a shot of him it's toward the end of the movie he's sitting in his kitchen and he's going through some files and a book and all that and he kisses his daughter goodnight, and he flips open one of the files, and it's the file on on um, the Zodiac. The I'm sorry, the Gemini Killer. Who was based on the Zodiac Killer. Correct. So, anyway. Yeah. He flips open that file, and boom, there's Dorf's face. So you can see that the face of the Gemini Killer, who was, you know, executed 15 years ago, mm-hmm. that's him. So yeah. at first that was a little confusing to me. This may or may not have come... Before the big explanation, I think it might. I think it came before the big explanation of Karis's regenerated body. So I was like, okay, wait a minute. Like, who is he seeing and why? Like, both of these people are dead. <laughs> you know, right? It's it's not like he's flipping between. At that time, I was thinking. So it's it can't be like he's flipping between the real one and the one he's got in his mind. He's literally flipping between the two people he has in his mind. He knows he's talking to the Gemini killer, so he's seeing sometimes seeing him as the historical Gemini killer. But then he's also in the body of Father Karras, so sometimes he's seeing him as Father Karras. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's the times in which he's more or less speaking as Father Karras or referring to the Father Karras story that he sees him as Father Karras. And it's definitely at the moments when he's more Gemini killer that he sees him as Brad Dorif. Mm, yeah. So, so Brad Dorif is the, like the figure, figure of his imagination. Sure. The, the actual Gemini killer. But yeah, it's so confusing. I mean, deliberately, obviously, to throw us off balance. and But also there's, you know, clearly a production reason for it. And well, it, it works for me because in the director's cut, I can't think of his name, Jason Miller, John Miller, whatever his John name Miller, is, yeah. the guy that played oh, Karis, mm-hmm. he wasn't in it at all. So it was always just Brad Dora. Yeah. And had that been the case, then I think I would have been confused as to why Kenderman thought it was Karis. Yes, exactly. And, and and then the whole explanation of, you know, I took his body and regenerated it doesn't make any freaking sense. Right. So if anything, like this at least creates a reason for it, the newer version. Anyway, let's let's give I guess we're kind of wrapping it up like so, you know, there's just all this back and forth and then eventually the Gemini killer gets really really angry at him and says, "Oh, you've just opened up a seat at the dance or something like that, right?" Uh, yeah, you just uh, delivered an invitation to the dance or something. The reason for that, and I did find this fascinating is because Pretty much from their first meeting, the Gemini killer tells him, I am the Gemini killer. Now, he doesn't explain how that is until a little bit later, but he is adamant that Kinderman tell the press that the murders that are happening are Gemini murders. Yeah. I feel like that's very true to life. A lot of these serial killers, they want 
yeah. the claim. That's why so many of them leave clues or write into newspapers or leave notes for the police or whatever. You know, they do it the same way every time. Right. They they want the recognition, and and he keeps saying, "Tell them," and eventually he says, "Tell them, or you'll you'll be sorry." And when uh, Kinderman refuses or, or something else, he insults him in some way. He says, you just, uh, you know, issued an invitation to the dance. And Kinderman's like, well, what does that mean? And he doesn't explain. But that's also where he talks about Kinderman says, how do you get out of here to do those things? And Brad Dorif in a very cheeky way says, it's child's play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And Child's Play came out the year before this, so they had to know what they were doing there. Oh, yeah. Um, well, cut to the little boy with freckles and red hair. <laughs> and red hair, right, exactly. So the Gemini killer warns them or something, and then Kinderman thinks for some reason that he's going to send somebody after that little boy, but they burst into the little boy's room, and it's just a nurse that they know that we've seen throughout and so then he figures out somehow i don't remember how i don't know how it didn't make sense to me the killer is <laughs> is going after his daughter there are so many bizarre things like so it's suggested like kinderman after the gemini killer says oh i i have friends who help me and kinderman goes out into like you know the common room of this psych ward and he's looking around at all of these patience and it's it's almost as like he figures out and we're supposed to figure out that somehow he's utilizing them meanwhile one of them is crawling around on the ceiling unnoticed yes like it's just so <laughs> bizarre but another one of them uh, a woman kills a nurse takes her clothes and leaves the hospital and is in a car and Kinderman is trying to call home but his wife's on the phone so he can't get through and and so he's racing home well that nurse gets to his house before he does but he gets to the house and and the wife opens the door and like everything seems fine but then the wife's like what's this nurse all about <laughs> and he's like wait what <laughs> yeah. And he goes in and it's this patient who's catatonic. And then I guess psychically, Brad Dorif says it's so easy to manipulate catatonics or it's so easy to possess catatonics or something. And he says, I waited until you got here because I wanted you to see. And the nurse picks up this giant medical shears, which we've seen before and puts them around the daughter's neck but the grandmother pulls her out of it like <laughs> a millisecond before they close she's got like cat-like reflexes this woman you know, yeah yeah so right yeah then this old lady is fighting with kinderman but all of a sudden it's like she's not possessed anymore and the reason she's not possessed is because this father mourning who we've just randomly seen a couple of times and we've been told has present has done an exorcism before shows up in the gemini killer's cell and starts doing an exorcism so it's like the demon had to leave that lady's body to deal with father mourning yes <laughs> and then that's when we get this big exorcism scene very reminiscent of the exorcism in the first movie um except it's it's brief father mourning starts doing the exorcism but then 
the demon, I, I'm assuming it's the demon speaking at this point. He's got yellow demon eyes in Karis's body. Yeah. Throws mourning all around the room. There are other effects with like fire and snakes and weird stuff, but throws him all of the room, pins him up to the ceiling. And then it's like he's glued to the ceiling. So his, when he tries to pull away, like his skin rips off. Yeah. It's super gory for compared to what we've been seeing so far. It's like yes. Hellraiser. And, you know, I mean, it's just, yes. a, it's, again, like a, a tonally just so different from the rest of the movie, I think. I give Blatty credit here because he said, oh, they want a cool exorcism. I can give them that. And he did. Yeah. You know, it like it's it's a good I mean, it gets kind of weird, but it's interesting. It's it's shot well. Well, then Kinderman shows up out of nowhere. Like, I guess he races back to the hospital, I guess. He's always racing to the hospital. I mean, he just always shows up there for one reason or another. And he gets back, and he sees that Morning is dead, and then he starts getting thrown around the room. Well, he pulls out his gun to try to shoot him. Right. You know, this is originally... All he did was show up there, pull out his gun, and shoot Father Karras to basically... Yeah, it says, forgive me, or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, he, and he does say that line, but instead of shooting him, he gets thrown all around, he gets thrown up against the wall, it looks like he's going to get killed. The demon asks him, you know, have I helped your belief? Because he's been... Kenderman is a religious skeptic, blah, who cares? But then he delivers this big monologue about, I believe in disease, and I believe in murder, and I believe in, you know, like, I don't know, it's kind of cheesy. All the bad stuff, yeah, because I'm a hard-boiled cop, and I've seen all the bad stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and I believe in you, I guess. Um, but then Father Morning, who we assumed was dead because we saw him crumpled on the floor, grabs his crucifix and holds it up to the demon and, and says, fight, Damien, fight it. And apparently... Father Karras is able to take control of his body momentarily, and he yells to Kenderman, shoot me, shoot me now, do it now. And so he does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like three times. And that, it's, yeah, I mean, that, that is pretty much it. I mean, he's dead, and the very last scene we see is Kenderman and some other cop, I think, standing over the grave, which was in the original cut but came much earlier in the movie like they were exhuming exhuming the body yeah you're right or something and finding somebody else in there but between those two shots is a shot of the sun and i was like oh it's going to end on a shot of the sun because i as i remember that's how the first exorcist movie opens right is this shot of a of a sun out in the desert and uh but no it's it goes to this to this i think the original the director's cut actually did end on the sun and i thought oh that was like a nice little bookend to the to the series recognizable yeah i forgot to mention that while kenderman was pinned up to the wall a hole to hell (laughs) (laughs) opened up in the floor no but it opens up by like you know 15 bolts of lightning striking it it takes a while for for that to manifest and these creepy i don't know i mean they're not demonic looking but they're like all made up in white and their hair is white and at first it's the young boy crucified the boy from the beginning but then it's father Karis crucified but i think it's all mind games from the demon or whatever yeah and then the only other thing we didn't talk about that jump scare but i kind of was uh saving it for the end there's one scene in the hospital where the camera is just positioned at the end of the hallway shooting down the hallway and there's a lot of 
business, not a lot of business, but there's a nurse at the nurse's station and then there's a guard posted and the nurse gets up to check on something like she heard a weird noise and it ends up being nothing and she goes back to the station and then she hears another weird noise and as she gets up to go check on it, like the guard, like it's like the changing of the guard or something and so the guard walks away and so the nurse is on the left side of the screen investigating this weird noise and then she opens the door looks in closes it and she turns around to walk away and this robed figure walks up behind her and there's a scary sound cue it's just this figure with those shears walking right behind her oh and and it comes out seemingly of nowhere and it's very quick and it's very spooky imagery and i feel like it's an iconic scene it is it's brilliant it's really good and i think that part of what makes it so good is the stationary nature of the camera kind of from afar yeah so the sudden movement seems so jarring and the reason i kind of saved this for the end now you're right. You said it was Adam who requested this, right? Yes. He's requested this several times, and we've entertained doing it several times. It's just that something else has always come up. When he requested it again recently, the reason that I wanted to do it is because my partner and I recently watched the two seasons of the television series, The Exorcist. Oh, yeah? And we both really liked it and alan's not a huge horror enthusiast he'll watch stuff because he knows i like it if it's really bad he'll be mad about it for a minute but <laughs> he gets over it but we both really really liked the series and if you are a fan of these movies especially the first one but um any of them really um, I really think that you would enjoy that series. It's streaming on Hulu. It acknowledges the events of the first movie. It doesn't specifically acknowledge the events of any of the subsequent movies. However, there are cool throwbacks to at least the first and third movie that I can remember. Um, imagery, uh, stuff like that, throwbacks. And I don't want to say too much about it because there are great twists and things that you don't see coming. Oh, It's got really good people in it. Um, Gina Davis is the lead in, in the first uh, season, and it, it basically follows these two priests, much like it was two priests, Father Marin and Father Karras in the original. These are, you know, younger, newer priests, but they're exorcists. We really, really liked it. And critically, it did really well. The critics were really kind to it. It just never found an audience. Huh. Um, and so it only lasted two seasons. But both seasons are solid. Um, I, I really encourage people to check that out. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out myself, too. I'm, I'm kind of curious. Especially with such a rousing review from you. <laughs> <laughs> like I said before, I feel like the movie is, uh, you know, it's weird. I didn't find it super scary, except for just one or two moments. I found it really odd. I found it very difficult to follow at first. And it would be the kind of movie, honestly, that I might have even stopped watching about 30 minutes in, had I not been doing it for a podcast. Or had it not been titled The Exorcist Part 3. You know, yeah. where just sheer curiosity alone kind of makes you want to, 
okay, well, we're going to have to see where this goes and how all this ties in. Because the original has such a pedigree that uh, anything claiming to be a sequel by the same writer and director, uh, well, the same writer of the original, now also as director, is worth a watch. So, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, can I recommend it to, I wouldn't recommend it to just anybody. I probably wouldn't even recommend it to most people. I'd say, have you seen the original? If not, God, go watch it, right? Oh, yeah. And then the rest of them, eh, only if you're curious. (laughs) Yeah. Ultimately, I ended up really enjoying it. I don't think it's an excellent movie, but I thought there was some really interesting stuff going on. If nothing else, visually, it was interesting to watch. I did find George C. Scott's performance over the top. Uh, I didn't love his portrayal of Kinderman, but... He apparently got nominated for a Golden Raspberry that year for Worst Actor (laughs) for that Uh, movie. Well, I can kind (laughs) of see it. I think that this movie is worth watching for Brad Dourif's performance alone. I mean, Mm. it... it, it, God, I, I... I'm no expert, but I would go so far as to say that this is like a master class in performance. Like, he is just Mm. so good. So I would recommend it on that alone. But uh, I'm really glad we did it, and I really appreciate the recommendation. Um, I'm glad we finally got around to it. I, I, I had a good time, and I had a good time talking about it. Well, thanks a lot, Adam, for your request. And uh, the rest of you out there as well, if you have any requests, please send them to us. You can find us online just by searching for Two Guys in a Chainsaw Podcast, where we have a website, we have a Facebook page, and we have a Twitter feed. You can you can reach us any one of those ways. Let us know any requests that you'd like to do us to do in the future, as well as any comments about this episode or anything that we've said tonight. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Chainsaw.